Recovery Reform is a podcast that provides educational content while addressing the stigma against drugs and the people who use them. Expertise meets lived experience as the hosts and their respective guests unpack the multifaceted cause that is recovery reform. All right, welcome back to another episode of Recovery Reform. I'm Taylor Nichols. I'm an addiction medicine and emergency medicine physician, and I'm here with my co-host, Macaulay Sexton, and we're going to be talking a little bit about his life. What I saw is a reduction in the the constant search for the for the opiates and or opioids and then I guess the the aspect of it that was not sustainable was the constant dose increase and um, just the culture within the clinic itself I found was uh, not conducive for recovery um, and there was not um, the the meetings with the counselor were okay but they in my opinion, were not really centered in like even of understanding of harm reduction. And it was like almost weirdly passively just traditionalist in a way, but also this is not a jab at that provider. It just, uh, they were very compassionate at the same time. So that was why I was even willing to talk to them and stuff. So, um, and this is all like me being kind of overly critical after years of separation, but but yeah, what what ended up happening is it just I found a dose at about 160 milligrams of of methadone with like the 14 at time milligrams of clonopin and then the addition of the Ambien from someone I met at the clinic, um, which again like none of this is meant to be a jab at at methadone or it's just there were aspects that were not sustainable and uh, that is why I just completely demonized the whole thing is and i also was obviously indoctrinated into 12 step ultimately that's going to be part of this story but uh so that then made me frame it all as nope you were just drug seeking nope that was all invalid up oh, but the thing is is that there was like a objective medical concern with that combination i was taking at that rate and it was actively killing me so then it was like now i'm still going to die um, but I don't have to deal with the the trauma of seeking out the substances, which I think is inherently better for someone to have maybe a reduction in traumatic events prior to their death. So even in the scenario that I did die, no, I'm sorry, like literally, like yeah, or I'm just now, in like, general in life, like reducing <laughs> traumatic events is a good thing, whether or not you are actively. <laughs> so yeah, that was a long-winded one, but yeah, it, it, that it, is it, the whole story with that. I think one thing that you mentioned is interesting uh, talking about the counselor at the clinic and, and I, you know, and I mentioned, we've talked about this before, but methadone programs are highly effective, right? It is a highly effective form of opioid treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, it does depend a little bit on sort of the intent you go in with and the treatment that you get there. And that includes yeah. the, the providers there that includes the, the the physicians, the counselors, all of that. And it is possible to be both very compassionate and also indoctrinated into an old school um, mentality of, of the way we should be approaching substance use disorders and a lot of methadone clinics because methadone was our first treatment for opioid use disorder and that methadone clinics have existed for a long, long time. And so they are still sort of often stuck in this old school mentality. And again, not to knock methadone as a treatment, it is the, it is the gold standard. But, yeah. um, but a lot of them do still have this, this sort of, uh, they aren't always necessarily harm reduction focused, even though you might think that they would be because, you know, it, it's opioid treatment for opioid use disorder. You're treating patients by giving them a long acting full agonist opioid, right? You would think that they might get with the program and like start viewing a harm reduction forward approach as beneficial, but that's not always true. So it is, I want to like validate what you're saying. Like you can be both very much compassionate and just still stuck in an old school way of thinking. And that, yeah isn't a knock on that person. That's just, 
That's just what they were indoctrinated with. And that's the view of the clinic. And that's just how the clinic operates. And so yeah. to your experience, like you didn't have the most positive experience in a methadone clinic and that's okay. Um, it doesn't make methadone bad. It just is your experience and that's valid. Um, but yeah. it is, I, you know, and I, and I actually never knew this about you before, but like that is a very valid part of your journey and it is a absolutely a critical step in the path of recovery for you um, because yeah. you consciously made the decision to go regularly to this clinic and do that instead of pursuing what you said, like you said, more traumatic experiences and decreasing the traumatic experiences is likely a valid part of your changing frame of mind about your own life, right? Because the place that you got to was like, I'm going to die and that's okay. And you were sort of passively okay with it. And you were actively participating in that like long drawn out process of like just over sedating yourself to death. And going to the methadone clinic may have been part of reframing that for you may have been part of reframing like, Oh, and I'm not having these traumatic experiences. The universe is, is giving me positive feedback rather than constant negative feedback, right? You're, you're going to a clinic that sort of validates your experience. You had the, the universe confirm that you could continue to take benzos um, because you <laughs> gave you, you, you made yourself have a seizure by going off cold Turkey, right? Like, but you are, you just hearing you tell this story, um, you, that you have had a feedback loop that was initially super negative and you were going deeper and deeper in this hole. And as I'm hearing you say this, like I'm, I'm seeing the, the, the like gradual climbing out of this negative cycle. Um, like that, your perspective is starting, like I can see the process and that your perspective is starting to get better. And I can see where that could potentially lead. And now I know some of the rest of the story, but like what happened while well, you now you have this sort of maybe negative framing of your experience there, which, you know, I want to talk to you about what that process has looked like in terms of reframing your experience um, and reframing your views of harm reduction. But, but where were you at this point where you're at the methadone clinic, you feel like you're sort of over sedated on these medications because you're still yeah. taking frankly a lot of benzos and a z drug which is essentially a non-benzo benzo um so you're just taking a lot of methadone um and then a lot of benzos and and benzo like substances yeah what, what does that look like then where you're like oh now i'm just over sedated like i don't like this experience so where do you go well the thing is is that so you touched on something that's important. At first, it made me hopeful because I was like, oh, like I actually was identifying as in recovery, too. And I was I was going and telling people, hey, I'm I'm in recovery now. And no one, <laughs> not, not really anyone was validating that. Everyone was like, oh, good. Yeah, your fucking eyes are rolling back in your head, bro. Great. So there was a lot of that. Um, but I genuinely did feel uh a sense of pride in the fact that I like felt like I was doing better. And, and then really the discrepancy just came with dosing and the kind of large access to clonopin. And then um, I did continue to buy like Xanax and Ativan and Valium all during that time. So it was like, I just didn't feel like one benzo was enough. I was like, I need multiple different benzos. So that didn't, that really didn't go away. This is the thing. And I didn't even register this. It took a long time to register this. Just to fast forward a little bit, and I'm not going to just totally jump into that. But me being on the methadone made the process of accepting that I was no longer going to take illicit opioids or just like any at all, a lot easier. And, and, and mentally accepting that because I had gone through this process of wearing out every single option basically. And, uh, you know, I had, I had taken Suboxone recreationally, um, you know, so I knew about Suboxone and, uh, you know, really I, but I knew also that it was a partial, that it's a partial agonist. So I was like, 
pretty sure that methadone is probably potentially more effective. So I wasn't really thinking about like, oh, maybe I'll just switch to Suboxone. You know what I mean? Because I was just like, logically, I still was able to kind of look at it and be like, oh, it makes sense that I've kind of worn out all the different options. And when I say, I don't want to just like passively mention the Suboxone thing, I would have periods again of, of unintentional abstinence and then I would acquire uh, Suboxone and it would get me high because I would have days if not a week or more off. So that's why it got me high. It's not going to get you high if you're using it, you know, if you're induced in a way that is like, you know, a normal protocol. Um, but, but basically, so it went from hopeful, oh, I think main, things may be looking up to, oh, wait a second, no, uh, things are not really working out because now I feel, quite frankly, more fucked up because I have a constant supply which again is like hard for me to even say because I, I I I hold the same belief as you. Like I fully support methadone. I actually think that like, you know, as we talked about in your interview, like just as far as like statistically speaking and just an understanding of, of you know, how it works and the fact that it's a full agonist, it just makes so much sense in the age of nitazines and even fentalogs and, you know, all that. Um, but I still just... That's why I'm hesitant to even say a lot of the stuff that I've said, uh, you know, today, because that that's that's part of why I've kind of even processing a lot of it now, because I, I've avoided even speaking about a lot of this on social media because I don't want to come off as like invalidating it, you know, but there's there's a there's like a double edged sword with access. And that was what I found is that I could never get consistent at access to something to reach the point that I now reached was the lowest depth that I've ever been. So it was like, it also helped to reduce harm. But then now, because of the increased dose constantly, and because of the, the, the Clonopin, Ativan, you know, Xanax, Valium, Ambien, it was like, you don't take that for years and not died pretty much like so it was like uh it was just concerning to everyone so it kind of flipped and so that's kind of what i like that's that's the part of my life to where i reached a place that felt like i was able to nod out really quickly like at the beginning of my day because i would go to the clinic at 5 a.m and so by 6 7 8 usually it was about like 8 9 9 a.m i was fully nodding out and uh so from the outside looking in, everyone, like, you know, the people still in my life, which is, you know, my mom, my partner, my sister, they're just like, this is not good. This is not good. Um, so I and do that think that first... invalidate methadone, though, because you no, were not just does... using methadone. You were like <laughs> no. hammering a and bunch of stuff on top of that. It also doesn't invalidate benzos. Like, that's the thing. Right. Like, benzos and methadone, there are people who utilize both those medications and they're not actively killing themselves. And it's just like, it, that's... So that's a huge part of my journey is just like looking at all these things that were ultimately harming me because of my compulsion and then realizing that that is not going to be everyone's experience and, and actually supporting the very thing that I demonized for years in early recovery. So it was like, um, just, just so you know, around this time, and we can segue into how this goes from just reserve, like resigning to the idea that I was going to die to then um ending up in treatment <laughs> that That's is it. you know basically about that what what happened because where I, where was that point that you you're like because you're still in this negative cycle you're getting yeah. more positive feedback you're having less traumatic experiences all good things but you're still like pretty much in the depths of this um yeah still with deeper active honestly use disorder you weren't yeah. increasing your dose of methadone anymore you 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 weren't seeking any illicit opioids um but you had your active benzo use on top of the methadone was really what sounds like what was harming you at this point um yeah and, and so that's, and then where does that go so it goes to me getting two prescriptions from the same provider for the same medication for the same amount so um i kept running out early of my i had 121 milligram uh, clonopin a month. And this provider ended up giving me another 121 milligram prescription uh, additionally, but they would, uh, it was kind of uh, in the middle of the month. So 
it would I would get the one prescription and then I would get the other one and so that's where some of the like me and and honestly just when I end up in treatment they're like that's entirely messed up and unethical I I honestly to this day do not believe that anymore because again uh maybe he was just like not informed when it came to like what was actually going on because it was only based on what I was presenting and this person in good faith was listening to what I had to say. Um, but again, I just, I, I just want to be clear. People can have their own kind of objective opinion on that based on legality and all of that. I still, to this day, I'm like, Hey, this person was holding me down because as soon as that prescription went away, that's where I would be buying pressed, pressed Xanax because that's around this time is when pressed Xanax bars became prevalent. So, it would have completely shifted me to that and probably would have died because a lot, a lot of them back then were like RC benzos or like these research chemical benzos and just weird shit too. Like it really wasn't um, like, like illicit fentanyl wasn't as prevalent at this time. And so this was around like, it existed, but it was like 2013 leading into, into 2014. So all throughout about, I want to say 2012 to that time, uh, a lot of it was me navigating pressed Xanax because, and I would willingly take them. So just to be clear, that is all a part of it as well is that like I was, I was buying, knowingly buying pressed Xanax and taking them because they looked like Xanax. Like that's how deep it was for me to where I knew it. I was like, this is a fucking pressed Xanax. They're selling them for really cheap. They're, this is, and they would say like, yeah, bro, this is a pressy. And I'd be like, uh, okay. So, um, <laughs> I just wanted to mention that because it speaks to the the compulsion as it relates to the way that a Xanax bar looks like that. It was deeper than than any of my other compulsions because and the of importance of safe some, supply. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So like just just to like rein it in the the access to the the prescription again. It's again. It's like a double edged sword. It's like that was definitely reducing my me seeking out these these benzos that were on the illicit market but it didn't cease so it was still you know constantly was buying this ambient script and so i always had that and um you know honestly just the nature of that medication people generally aren't going to take 10 ambient you know because it's like i just would take it during the day and it would already be weird and trippy enough um but, but yeah so basically what it is is that the consistency of supply not only reduced harm, but it also perpetuated harm when it came to the amount of substances that I could consume at one time. So my tolerance was extremely, extremely high. And in all honesty, I'm not quite sure, but I'm pretty sure it took me a year to get to 160 milligrams of methadone. But that's the only reason that I didn't go higher is because I ended up being intervened on and going to treatment so i can now kind of segue into yeah, talk about that what what happened is that my mom had a wealthy boyfriend who had the money to pay for me to go to treatment so mm -hmm. now it's actually on the table whereas before uh it was not and um i'm not gonna go too deep into this but there was a time um, when I was 18 that I actually willingly went to a detox. I just, I don't consider that as like a significant part of my story because it was like, a, I think it was like a two day thing. And really the only thing that I think is, is relevant to mention, I often mentioned this kind of mentioned this around the time that I go into me transitioning into, to, to treatment. When I tell this, the story is that the, the main significant thing was that I was told that I was really, I was going to get worse and that, everything would get worse and that I would do drugs I hadn't yet done. That was the main takeaway from that was that I had a clinician tell me that I was going to smoke crack, that I was going to, and I wasn't even, I like, didn't even have stimulant use disorder. And they're like, you're going to smoke crack. You're going <laughs> to do heroin. You're going to, and I'm like, what? And, and, and so, yeah, it, uh, it's something that, you know, is relevant to mention, but just to get back, back to the point here is, uh, everyone around me was just very, it was very clear based on my appearance and the fact that I was nodding um, and the fact that they had to supervise me and check on me all night, that this was not good. And, uh, yeah. you know, it was terrifying for the people in my life to actually make sure I was breathing throughout the night and to like make sure that they were up 
to check on me. So that's what was happening. And uh, so then my mom had, you know, a boyfriend who had money. And so they got to talk to, you know, no, none other but an addiction medicine doctor. And this doctor was like, yeah, you need to send him to treatment right now. Like this is, this person's gonna die. Um, Honestly, I feel like a lot of us, you know, a lot of people with substance use disorders, I hate to generalize say a lot of us, but a lot of people with substance use disorders, they um, feel invincible and then have some sort of resilience when it comes to their physical health. Even though it's declining rapidly, they're somehow able to like survive a really long time. Uh, I don't know like what that is. It's really interesting. Um, but that was the case for me, I believe, because it just was like, I think I could have gone on much longer uh, quite frankly, um, you know, maybe not if, if, uh, I had kind of a dose increase, whether with the benzos or, or the methadone, but point being is, uh, you know, that was like part of my awareness is that like, uh, this is going to continue. I don't think I'm going to die yet, but I think I am, but maybe not just not yet. Um, and so people were aware of that cause I would articulate things like I'm screwed. Nothing's ever going to get better for me. My mom said I was like Darth Vader. She said that it was like, I was this, like <laughs> this, that was the energy that I put out. It was just like this villain that like nothing would ever work for me. And there's no, ch <laughs> there's no change ever that could happen. Um, so they talked to, you know, an amazing, mind you, an amazing, amazing, amazing addiction medicine doctor, um, who did end up passing away shortly after I got to um, meet with him when I came back home. Um, but not to get ahead of myself, I just don't want to kind of forget to affirm him. Uh, it was like Dr. Munden is uh, such a beautiful, amazing person that was just super legitimate and caring and informed and non-stigmatizing. Um, and so, yeah, basically the suggestion um I'm not sure if he suggested an intervention directly, but it was suggested somewhere that I, um, that they staged an intervention. And, uh, so they quickly staged an intervention. And, uh, during this time I was having, I have always been super intuitive and that didn't go away when I was using it. It was frustrating that it didn't go away because I didn't want that. Um, I was like, oh, this is annoying. Um, but the, uh, basically I knew it was going to happen without anyone telling me. I was like, something's about to happen. They're about to do something. They're going to fucking stop. They're going to try to stop this from happening. And I was like, mm, I wasn't happy about it. But uh, I basically, I, I woke up uh, to, to go to the clinic. It was very early, um, you know, very early in the morning. And I woke up to a knock at my door. So actually, um, I'm mistaken. They, I woke, was woken up to a knock. And I was annoyed because I was like, I don't have to go to the clinic for like, you know, another 30 minutes or whatever. Um, and it was uh, a woman on the other side of the door who was like, do you want to come out and talk? And I was like, fuck you. Who the <laughs> fuck are you in my fucking house right now? Like, you know, it was like super off putting, honestly. Um, I'd, I don't want to go, we can go a little bit more into this whenever, but I'd strongly disagree with attack interventions. I think they're unethical. Um, I, I do not agree with that tactic. It is, uh, extremely just weird. Um, to go about something like that. And it just seems just to go describe against that any... really quick. What, what, yeah, what it, do you it was mean just by like, that for our listeners? It, like, what, what do you mean well, by attack intervention? That's how, what I call it, but it, it's, it's, and a lot of people say the same thing. It's basically to where an intervention can be implemented with a clinician that is mindful of, of psychology and that can then be like, hey, we're going to have conversations about this. And it's a, it's a group conversation to where you're like, mm -hmm. The first initial intake call would be family members and the individual in question, not just the not just the family members. And also the interventionist would would also go into detail as it relates to the family members acknowledging and taking responsibility for anything that they have done to perpetuate that individual's trauma. So that would also be part of the process. That's a mindful intervention. An attack intervention is where you stage it like a surprise fucking party and you <laughs> like surprise, you need to be abstinent. And um so it was like very shocking because I'm like, who is this person? I don't know this person. And now they're telling me, do you want to come talk? And I immediately was like, mm, I know, I know what's going on here. This is, this has to do with what's going on with me very obviously. Um, right. so I like proceeded to just kind of like destroy my room and like tear shit off the walls and stuff. And was just like, fuck. And I, you know, oh, I went to like my, my stash of stuff. Cause I, I, I was able to keep stashes of weird stuff. So like I had, I say weird, but just stuff that you wouldn't really associate with some, like with someone who's actively sedated all the time. Like 
I had a bunch of acid and like mushrooms and stuff. And it's like, that shit's not going to work if you're on benzos. It'll just cancel it out almost. Uh, like not almost, it will. There's a reason that they, they often call benzos, uh, you know, uh, trip cancelers or whatever. Um, so yeah, basically I just was like, just like took stuff. I'm pretty sure I took acid. Like I, I took things that it's like, this is not going to be good to take right now. Uh, it doesn't make much sense, but I was like kind of just grasping at like anything that I had and, uh, you know, took a bunch of, add a bunch of Ativan that day, like a bunch, like at least like, uh, I think a hundred or more. So I was just like bunch of Ativan. Um, and I like broke a mirror and was like acting like I was going to cut myself, but I like, couldn't do it. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I can't do it. Um, so yeah, I like did that. And then I went out basically. And, uh, it was the whole, um, extremely authoritarian interventionist, um, did not express any emotion. Um, was very stoic. Stoic is like too kind of a word to describe it. It was very cold and dismissive and weird. And I was like, again, very intuitive, very empathetic person. Um, Even with all the years of of being sedated that I was like, I'm not feeling this person at all. Like, I just don't. And I I encounter people in recovery that I was like, oh, that person's cool. You know, like, so it was not just me projecting. I was like, this person is, I just don't feel this. And I insulted them, you know, I insulted them. They had something going, like they had some sort of um, disorder or something with their eyes. And I like was insulting that. Um, oh, and, like, no. and, and, yeah, so it was, you know, immediately I was like going so poorly. Yeah, no, it was, it was just me grasping at things. And again, like, um, just a little side note, like, uh, later my mom ended up like apologizing to this person because I was like calling them cross-eyed or whatever. And they were like, uh, you think I haven't heard that every single time that I do an intervention. <laughs> so shout out to cross-eyed girl out there, wherever you are, hope you're doing well. Um, and none of this is meant to be overcritical of that person. I just fundamentally disagree with uh, what I call attack interventions and, or surprise party interventions. So, uh, the, this is what mattered though. Okay. What mattered is that there's two aspects. What made me receptive to my mom and my partner was that they were expressing genuine concern for me from a place of fear and uh, ultimately love. So right. that is where I could I could see and resonate and understand that very easily. I was totally understanding that. I felt terrible. I was like, I know this already, but now they're saying it because they were scared to say it to me because I was very reactive and angry most of the time. And again, like presented like a like a villain to them. So. Um, yeah, there was eggshells. There was like all a lot of the tropes or a lot of the stereotypes. They did manifest for me, and uh, you know, a lot of it was I was playing a part that I felt was just inevitable if you use substances. So I like to like mention that. But um, yeah, what got through to me was that they were scared for my life. They cared about me. They loved me. But then you know the aspect that I think again I can't say oh it shouldn't have gone this way. But I was ultimately given ultimatums. And uh, two people showed up for my intervention. <laughs> so that tells you where, you know, where I was at. Didn't have good, att- I, mean, I always make jokes about, you know, shit's not going good when, you, when your intervention has a very low attendance. Um, so I, I, had, I had two people at my intervention. My dad was not involved at all in this. Um, my dad just completely basically disengaged with me um, when I was using at that level, um, just out of, I think, years of him being around that type of stuff and him growing up in the music industry and just like being busy himself. So it's like, uh, I've healed from any kind of like feelings I had around that and feeling like, Oh, he wasn't around or whatever. It was just like, I, I honestly, I've, uh, kind of changed my position on, on that, you know, just after a lot of work, but uh, yeah, I, I basically was given an ultimatum and I countered with, well, I need to go get my, my dose of methadone right now. Like, yeah. What do you, they're like, you want to get on a plane? And I was like, do you want me to go into withdrawal? Because that's, <laughs> that's what's going to happen here. So they like reluctantly accepted that. I, uh, you know, I had like a six pack of beer. I chugged a beer. I, uh, you know, my, my partner and my mom, um, you know, had cannabis and I knew where it was and I went and got it and I ate the whole like half ounce of cannabis out of spite in front of them. And I was like, just like with a beer, I was like, ah, you fuck. 
fuckers, how dare you want me to stay alive? And then just like ate this <laughs> half ounce of like dank ass weed. Um, which for those of the, that don't know, uh, cannabis flower is not activated. It, it has what's called THCA in it, which is an acidic version of, of THC. So you need to warm it up or decarboxylate it in order for it to have a psychoactive effect. Um, so it wasn't about, you can't get high off eating raw cannabis. I just was spitefully eating this this half ounce of cannabis, which is a pretty significant amount have, to like, eat. Like done nothing and tasted terrible. It tasted kind of dank, dude. I'm not going to lie. Really? It was really like, like – it, it, it really – it was very uh, – a lot of chlorophyll taste, I guess I'll say. <laughs> but the, paired with like the, the fact that it was some dank weed. Um, but it would – yeah, it wasn't good. You know, it didn't taste right. good. Not – especially washing it down with a, with a beer, um, which again – just was purely in the moment, um, like my alcohol. Something about that combination moderate. just sounds uh, like yeah, just it was unhinged Macaulay just going, going <laughs> after, going at it. I find it just. I wish I had footage of it because it just. I know like that. My my point was to be so spiteful of you guys can't have this. I'm gonna eat this right now and just destroy it. Um. So so yeah that happened prior to getting into the car um when i when i got into the car i started taking i had a gabapentin prescription that i used periodically and i started taking it and pouring out all of the powder inside of these capsules and taking these tiny ativan and sticking them into the capsules so i could fit like i believe five or six inside of the gabapentin capsule and i was like i'm gonna get like you you honestly can just fly with pills like I, I did it all the time. For some reason, I was like, well, maybe they'll still give me the gabapentin in treatment. So I'm going to like I was thinking I was ahead of the game. I was like, I'm going to put all of these Ativan into gabapentin. So I'm in my mom's car just pouring gabapentin powder on the ground. Like it was all it was just so chaotic and just like really wild. But I went to the clinic. They They spoke to the clinic prior and said, do not give him take homes. They gave me take homes though. And uh, the thing is, I actually agree with that decision as well yeah. because you don't know if someone's going to actually, what am I, what if I leave, I get, get, yeah. I fly to where I was going, which is Mississippi. And now I decide not to go and now I don't have anything. Uh, so it actually agree with their decision to give me take homes. Um, but what I did is I took, hundreds of milligrams of methadone like i took so much methadone um to the level that i literally was like i can't take anymore um and i basically my partner um took me to we we all went to the airport and then my mom kind of just literally was like hiding behind one of those signs with a map on it and i was like mom <laughs> like trying like still trying to maybe convince her to like not you know make me go um, yeah, and, and and so then like my long term partner, um, who I'm still with, escorted me to Mississippi basically, and um, I was yelling and asking people if they had Xanax in the airport because I did not get to take a last Xanax bar, and I was like so pissed off. But mind you, I'm on Ativan and Clonopin, but yeah, I'm like you just slammed no, a bunch of it along with your yeah. beer and weed uh, salad <laughs> combo. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but I, but it was more again like a spiteful thing like really y'all like you're not gonna i'm not gonna get to take and and it wouldn't i wouldn't have settled for a football or you know one milligram xanax i wanted a two milligram xanax bar because that was like my favorite thing um and you know i'll i'll rein it in here but but i ended up actually seeing a nurse that i knew who was like into some illicit behavior and they 100% had Xanax and wouldn't give it to me. So then it created this whole other thing because I had gotten prescription meds from her before. And I was like, dude, are you kidding me? You're not going to give me any Xanax? Like, I know you have it. And she's like, yeah, I do. I'm not giving you any, though. And I was just like, rude not to share. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I literally was on the plane wishing that were it would you, crash the you, whole time. Were you tripping at all? Because you said you slammed a bunch of like acid. It didn't. It did nothing to it, and it wasn't a bunch. It, I literally, I know that I took a, a little bit of acid, and I, I ate mushrooms too. And I, the thing is, is like for those that are familiar, if you take a large dose of of, of a psychedelic and then you take a benzo, it'll like stop it. It will like stop it from happening almost completely. So. It did honestly. It probably just made me a little bit more erratic. It didn't. I wasn't seeing anything. There was no none of that. Uh, it just 
probably again kind of contributed to like the chaoticness of me just having a bunch of different stuff in my system but it i do believe that that much methadone and that that many benzos is is really going to kind of subdue any effect from that but it was not like i took a whole sheet of acid like i know right. that it was like a it was a, a smaller dose and and yeah same thing with the with the mushrooms and in, in all honesty um i i'm not sure at all i just know that it was not a big amount um because there was still some there was like a significant amount left over that it ended up being like you know just uh gotten rid of or, or uh, thrown out so uh so yeah it basically just had to have supervision throughout this this trek to mississippi which again that was the most depressing possible place i could think of going uh for treatment and you know i always say no hate to mississippi but i don't ever want to go there um and <laughs> So yeah, my, my, my partner just escorted me and it was a nightmare and for them. And I'm so surprised that she was able to, you know, um, not deal with the situation cause she'd been dealing with erratic stuff, but, um, just, you know, so surprised that she was continually willing to engage and to, you know what I mean? Like it just was, it yeah. takes so much, uh, patience to do something like that. And I just admire that. So yeah, I was on the plane basically, like I said, briefly, I just was kind of wishing that the plane would crash was like the main thing is I was like, please just let this plane crash. And I'm like, I'm in, you know, in here with my long-term partner and I'm still wishing that the plane would crash. Um, so it kind of shows like where my mind was at. And, uh, yeah, I, I showed up in, I had a layover, which is like, you probably don't want to layover when you're trying to get someone to fucking treatment. <laughs> and I had a layover in Dallas and I, uh, went and I, I drank alcohol for the last time. Um, I haven't drank alcohol since then. And for me, it's really, I'm sorry. It's not like a significant thing. Cause I, I, I always moderated it, but it's, it's interesting to think back that I literally, I've, I've not had a sip of alcohol since I was in the Dallas airport. <laughs> um, so it's just like funny. And it was a Stella. That was my favorite beer was Stella Artois. And so I just kind of capped it off with that. Um, but yeah, I ended up in Mississippi and, uh, you know, uh, got picked up and, and, you know, a, a very stigmatizing term, but it's kind of still funny to me is the druggy buggy, the white van, the, 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 you know, the <laughs> white van that they used to escort people and drive them around. And, uh, was immediately met with really people that I was like, uh, what the fuck is going on here? Like these, this is not good. Uh, <laughs> very, uh, uh, look, I'm from Texas, dude, like Southern in a way that was scary to me. And, uh, the, the, and I'm not trying to be mean. It's like, I love people with Southern accents. I'm from Texas, but I'm obviously from, from Austin. So I, I kind of sound different, but, um, it was just kind of like, Oh, I'm not familiar that as familiar with these type of Southern people or country, like more country people. And it felt like very, uh, again, cold and, uh, mm. dismissive and not caring. So first provider, that, this was your or, experience in, in the, yeah. As uh, soon as I get there, the person driving me, I'm, I literally just start crying. Cause I was like, the person <laughs> did not seem to be caring or understand the the brev like the the severity of the situation based on their energy and again that's all my assumption but come to find out later i was actually accurate about a lot of these staff members so the the, the reason i mentioned that is because um i succeeded in spite of that i i you know i was so just like scared and frozen that i stayed kind of uh i just stayed in my place um, right. like as far as like geographically, not like stayed in my place, but like I stayed there because I was too scared to move or do anything. And a lot of it was because there was not an energy of compassion coming from the majority of the staff. There was one staff member that was someone with lived experience that actively uh, made me willing to try recovery. And it was uh, a clinician named Lisa Williams, who, um, is just an amazing person. And, and she, um, yeah, that was obviously, the person and obviously and, made an you know, impact to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I like to, I want to, cause I want to try to be, you know, not two, two and a half hours into this, but, uh, try to keep it as, as brief as possible. I'll just, if you're cool with it, I'll kind of quickly go into treatment. I assume that's where well, you're. I do, yeah. I want to, I want to talk about that. I do want to say one thing that you've mentioned a few times and, and I think this is sort of a, uh, important almost clarifying moment on this, but 
you know, there's the expression that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. The opposite of addiction is love and community. And what you are talking about is that the things that succeeded in your intervention and that helped you in your residential treatment were people who showed you love and showed that they cared and they cared about you as a person. They cared about your health and your survival. Um, you know, yep. you mentioned your mom and your partner like you were like, well, that was my reason that I went along with it because they were like, didn't want me to die. That's kind of important. And I think, oh, I think for anybody who is sort of understanding this, they're like, oh, tough love is, is important or whatever. Like that doesn't, that's, that's, you know, some, maybe that works for some people, but that's really not the, that that's really not effective at large. And it's important to focus on the fact that like, it's in fact, we've been doing this backwards. The the tough love approach is not helpful. The opposite, in fact, is what we need to be doing. We need to be showing these people um, who are in their active use, who are in recovery, love and compassion and building community around them. uh, Because that is what is, the opposite of addiction. And that's the way that you can climb yourself out of that hole that you're talking about, that you, you were like in so deep. Um, and the things that helped bring you out were, were people showing you love and compassion. And it wasn't, you know, it was obviously, it sounds like it was only one person at this facility who was doing that for you. And that's, you know, um, a lot of love to that person for, for, um, for being a, a wonderful human and really recognizing what it takes to actually help people recover. And, and again, you know, McCullough, you're the, you're the uh, anomaly here. You're, you're not the norm, but you went once and that was it. What, what did yeah. that look like to you? Um, again, I was met with a disturbing epiphany, if you will, that again, even in the treatment space, not uh, there wasn't much that could potentially help me. Is that what it felt like? And that it was very, uh, again, cold and institutionalized. So it, uh, yeah, it, it was purely from a place of a really a, a huge rebound of anxiety and pain. And that created a little bit of, uh, it just it, it made me frozen. It made me frozen, and I felt like I couldn't do anything, and I just kind of was in shock, basically. So, um, what what ended up kind of happening is, uh, I just want to kind of briefly mention that it was a mixture um, of direct communication with love and empathy from Lisa Williams, the the provider, my counselor there. So, one of the first things she said to me was like kind of calling me out but then proceeded to then like follow up with like compassion and so it was like very mindful very and that's kind of uh that's what often does work for people but um i will say the only thing that i thought was a little bit of a discrepancy was like the immediate like i'm going in with this and then kind of going into more like understanding compassionate approach but it 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 obviously it worked, you know, it, it, it definitely, it brought down my defenses because I thought that I was the worst case that existed. And then like, she kind of broke it down, broke down that wall by being like, Hey, here's a bunch of things that happened to me. Like, and that was the first time I ever talked to her. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like this woman is more hardcore than me. And so I was like, uh, all right. So, so there is, I want, I just wanted to mention that, like, I like, um, uh, a nuanced approach that comes from a place of discretion. So there's some people who actually will not resonate if you're coming into it with just like this, like super energy that seems just inherently compassionate. Some people actually prefer someone that's like really abrupt and um, direct and maybe even slightly aggressive. I, it's all very personal. I think that um, the fact that that is usually the protocol is a huge discrepancy. Like you're mentioning, that's what, that's what I disagree with is it's like, Hey, we're going to, there's, there's some people that are just going to recoil from that immediately and never listen to what you have to say again and often leave, leave rehab AMA. Um, but, but what it is, is that I periodically saw 
things that seemed like uh, encouraging. I just, I, I saw things and experienced things that were encouraging. And uh, I had peers that were compassionate and caring towards me. And it was like, oh, okay. Like, I think I might be able to go through this, but I really need to mention that like the majority of it is I was so scared and uh, traumatized by the process, <laughs> quite frankly, that yeah. I was like, I have to not ever do this again because I'm this, if this is what it is, this is what is available to treat this, then I'm never going to be in, I never want to be in that position again where I have to experience this treatment again. And uh, that shouldn't be the takeaway <laughs> from treatment in my opinion you know the the thing is is that again the redeeming quality was the 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 counselor who was genuinely advocating for me and going against some of the suggestions of the higher up treatment team that were saying hey you need to move to mississippi hey you need to like she was like no like you have a life you yeah. need to go back home you're not going like go to silver living yeah but you're not going to move here so the the whole thing is is that there were behaviors that were not professional and unethical that I witnessed, um, texts that were like taking advantage of members, uh, of, of my, of my peer group out there. Um, even like taking them out of treatment and then ultimately like, uh, getting fired. Like there was a bunch of weird stuff going on with like sexual undertones with staff and, uh, like women staff members, um, that felt like very, uh, just inappropriate and weird, um, you know, just, just stuff like that. And uh, ultimately, um, unethical behavior from many of the techs. And uh, it just, again, I was like, I'm in, this is what happens. This is where I'm at. And it just felt like uh, just a combination of everything coming together and ultimately like kind of like a living hell scenario. But now I can't use substances. And uh, so, again, purely out of fear and out of never wanting to be there again, I decided that I wasn't going to use drugs. And that I, and it, but it, it was after some time. It, it wasn't just immediately. Yeah. It was like I got beaten down more and more and more. Um, and like, you know, had to do a family program to where you are basically being kind of called out in front of a bunch of other random families, um, which I believe is also, that is a one-on-one -on -one yeah. clinical thing. That is not something you do in a group therapy setting. Um, yeah. I was manifesting as the worst person in the group. So everyone's concern is directed towards me, of people I don't know, um, family, like, uh, like, you know, people's parents and stuff. Right. Um, so the, I did EMDR, which was good. That helped me. Um, I was heavily medicated. They they did like a, a very short suboxone taper on me in there. Um, they put me on a phenobarbital temporarily. Um, and then they put me on a extended release Seroquel, 150 milligrams during the day and like 150 milligrams of normal Seroquel at night and Wellbutrin and uh, Depakote and Gabapentin and Clonidine. And uh, they also gave me uh, Haldol when I went into psychosis. So I did go into a psychosis. So, um, you know, without just drawing this out really far, I, I got value out of the encounter with Lisa Williams, the counselor. I got value through some of my peers, but like the institute on an institutional level, I was like, eh, no, dude, like, this is not it. This is not good. And I don't ever want to end up here again. So that was a huge motivating factor to like, try to do the things that they uh that like lisa was suggesting which was like recovery community and you know specifically yep. like you know 12 step and stuff so that's where from a, that, that's where the whole like trope the idea of like uh you know misery can bring willingness and all this other stuff and like you know rock bottom and everything that's where that often comes into play for people um but really what it was is that it was like a, a level of desperation that then made me kind of evaluate the situation and go okay well what's at hand uh i go and i'm unhoused in in mississippi which i i didn't even say it but like i had a period of of, of being unhoused in austin prior to moving in with my mom and i was you know luckily very privileged to occasionally i would have motels um so i was traumatized from that whole dynamic and so that's part of a re another reason why I didn't leave treatment and it's another reason why I went to treatment because I was told that I would then be unhoused if I didn't go so um that was the incentive was don't 
yeah, don't use and then you'll be able to have some a roof over your head and you'll be given food and all that. So that kind of biological, you know, just not bio, but th those concerns when it comes to like uh, social consequences and just the need to maintain sus sustenance biologically was started to come in a lot once the substances were not overriding those parts of my brain that, <laughs> you know what I mean? That, 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 they, that they were to where, you know, I obviously had uh, motivation to, to, to use substances more so than to do those other things or make sure I had food or water or sleep, you know, but, uh, but yeah, that's really, I can go on and on about this. No, I'll, the, I'll, but so you got, you went to this residential treatment. It sounds like was not, was very much a negative experience overall. Um, yeah. That seems like it was not gen generally and overall like the thing that was helpful to you in terms of your growth or development in your, in like, yes, you did get into abstinence um, and maintain that for a period while you were there, but it didn't, it doesn't sound like it was the thing that helped you recover from this traumatic experience of feeling like you were so deep in this hole that you didn't even care about living. And in fact, didn't care if your partner died with you. Um, like that's, that's pretty dark. And yeah. it doesn't sound like this, this, uh, residential, um, helped you get there, but it, it got you, sober um and going forward then you were able to maintain that which is like i said it's not the average um but you you were able to maintain that abstinence um particularly from your you know drugs of choice um what did that look like though as you as you like graduated from residential and then you went back to texas where did that take you? So basically, the addiction medicine doctor was coordinating aftercare. So I had a sober living set up before I left. So I immediately got on a plane and got came home. I got to visit with family. And that night I was in a, a sober house. So there was... There was no uh, period of idle time. It was immediately you're in a sober house, um, and so again the the sense of isolation increased um, because then now I was like uh, that's something I didn't really go into, but I ultimately felt extremely isolated in treatment. I think that's a huge discrepancy with it is that um, when you do get sent to another state you often witnessing people with their family members that are coming and visiting them. And then you're not. And it, that, you know, when you're very emotionally raw is like the last thing that someone should be experiencing. Um, so like isolation was a huge aspect of what was traumatizing to me. And uh, my dad did end up coming, but uh, cause he was on tour, but they ultimately actually, um, he came once and then was about to come again. And they actually turned him away because I was positive for THC um, and they thought I relapsed on THC, which uh, I guess they're unfamiliar with a OG stoner like me that was eating edibles every single day for an extended period of time. And it, it can take upwards of way more than 30 days for that type of that level of THC consumption to, to, you know, to not result in a positive drug screen. So it was like that was another aspect, you know, uh, that I'll just briefly mention and say that it was very conflicting to be told that I relapsed on cannabis of all things while I was in treatment. Uh, you know, so I it just I left it with like a bad taste in my mouth, except I really love to this day, I love Lisa Williams. She's like such an amazing person. So it was like that and then a, a couple peers out there. Um, you know, and honestly the program director that he was like the owner Shout out to Tom Kepner. He's just the OG AA guy. And he was very, he was honestly very sweet too. I just, uh, I just have mixed feelings about obviously treatment centers that are just AA based, but yeah. that he's like a good example of a true like AA person who I think is a little like actually more ethical and, and, uh, understanding. And, and I remember him saying, um, I'm going to give you this book, you know, the Alcoholics Anonymous book, and it's not to like diagnose you. It's just, if this seems to help you then cool and so i thought that was a very 
good kind of approach. But anyways, I, yeah, I just went immediately to sober living dude. And within a day I was in a, in a 12 step meeting and I immediately asked someone to sponsor me. So, uh, you know, I, again, I'm like appearing as the poster boy for traditional recovery because it's like, I'm doing everything out of fear of relapse and out of fear. So it was like my whole life was now based in like avoiding using drugs. And, and then I did find purpose because I went deep. I did the steps immediately. I, you know, ended up getting like positions of authority and after maintaining and time, like I would, I got to create my own meeting and chair my own meeting. I was like appointed to be the H and I director. So like the hospitals and institutions kind of like service advocate. So I'm like going to rehabs, I'm going to prison. I started going to prison and, and doing service work and sharing my story and uh, giving out, you know, what they call big books, the, the literature mm-hmm. of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, so I did everything. I did everything to the T. And uh, then I, I started to realize that the medications I was taking, all the serical, it, it was making me feel like I was going to die. So now I'm in recovery and I'm feeling like I'm going to die because of literally, and I've heard people who've shared this experience. There's something about it. I don't know if it's just the dose of Seroquel combined with like the extended release, but like I would take my meds and I would be laying there and I was like, I think I'm going to stop breathing and die. So that was then happening. And I was like in recovery and my main thing was pharmaceuticals. And so then I had this whole conflicting thing of like, oh, they just put me on a bunch of pharmaceuticals. And then I went into like kind of anti big pharma type shit. And I was like, uh, yeah, this is really bad. So, um, Again, just I'm trying to keep us within the hour. We have like just a couple minutes left. Uh, I, I basically ended up researching um, CBD, uh, you know, which is a minor cannabinoid that's found within cannabis that's non-psychoactive. And uh, I do not encourage anyone to try to do this, but I, I got CBD that had THC in it. It was not like a, an isolate. It was like a full spectrum CBD. And I effectively got off of uh, all of those medications without any sense of withdrawal. And it was actually, a, it was an easy process for me. So basically what it is, is I got value in what I was presented because I thought it was the only option. And so I, I did everything that I was told to the T. Um, but then after years of that community, um, I realized that I was now experiencing suicidal ideation again and that the meetings were feeling more like a, a a dependency that was forced upon me than a resource that was helping me anymore. So that is where my whole deprogramming journey began. And and honestly, we're going to have to do a separate one on yeah. that because well, I want to talk about that. But it sounds like you got to the place where you were maintaining your abstinence and you felt like the risk to you was of of leaving that was too great and you were stuck. And so yeah. that, and then, and then you went to that dark place again, because now you're left with one option in the same way where you, before you felt like you didn't have it, you didn't have an out, you didn't have an escape. You felt like sort of the universe was against you. And, and, and you and I have talked about this before, but feeling um, about even just talking about the term recovery, like, like, People can view that as sort of like a life sentence to perpetual lifelong recovery that you are, um, you know, you have to be doing the service service work and 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 um, doing the steps and that there are there that that's the only option that exists. And, and I think, you know, I mean, as is our mission to bring it back to how we even came up with the name recovery reform is like the both of us in our initial conversations about how we were going to frame this and, and about doing this the conversations were about what what is the goal what's the mission what does it look like what do we both want what are we aspiring to do here and that is frankly the thing that we both fun, first connected on and that we both fundamentally agree with is that the entire framing of how you know how we manage substance use disorders and treat the people who have substance use disorders and what recovery spaces look like that has to change and so that you know just to bring it back to that is that what you're saying is that you got to a place where you were in a person in recovery and you felt trapped in that and then you know obviously 
that's another conversation that I do want to have is I want to know what that looked like for you and what, um, what your vision of how you would do things differently would look. Um, and I think, you know, I think we, that, that is a multifaceted discussion. I think we have some folks in mind who I'd like to have that discussion with. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate your vulnerability. And to the listeners, I appreciate all of you listening. Um, as always, please like and follow and subscribe and all those good things. And uh, remember to be kind and show love and compassion towards people who use drugs. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are our own and do not represent that of our employers. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please follow up with your doctor regarding your care. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections. Thank you for listening.